A panda walks into a restaurant, sits down in a booth, and orders from the waiter. When the food arrives, the panda promptly pulls out a gun, eats, shoots, and leaves. When the police arrive and question the waiter, he simply hands them a dictionary and shrugs, completely unfazed. After reading the dictionary, the police declare the panda innocent of any crime. Why? Good morning, my name is Laura Stengel, and I have the honor and privilege of being one of your teachers this morning as we open God's word. So I wanted to start this sermon a little bit differently, um, and I started it with something called a red herring. And for those of us who are a little bit nerdy, red herrings are a literary device or a form of riddle that has a bunch of wordplay and misleading information. It's designed to confuse and misdirect you to the wrong answer. So depending on how I say eats, shoots, and leaves, and the context that I say it in, you're probably going to have a different conclusion than what the riddle is actually about, which the answer to the riddle, if you know anything about panda bears, is in the dictionary. It says that they eat shoots and leaves, of course, meaning bamboo shoots and leaves, which is why the police said he was just being a panda bear. So why am I going on and on about red herrings? Well, it's because of our topic this morning, which is freedom to worship. Okay, what do red herrings and panda bears have to do with freedom to worship? Well, as I was thinking about it, I was thinking about the fact that depending on how you've grown up, what you've been taught, and even your cultural influences, all of us might have a very different definition of what worship is, which is why I open with a red herring, because depending on our context, we might have a different operation, a different conclusion than what the Bible actually says about worship, let alone what freedom to worship means. I know for me, I grew up in an environment where worship and music were synonymous. Worship was what happened up on the stage. Worship team. Worship was Chris Tomlin on Cane Love belting out a tune. That's all worship, right? And while it is, it still begs the question, is that all worship is? Let me back up a little bit and let me give you another red herring. A person cannot sing to the Lord and yet is still able to worship. Why? And so as we dive into sort of answering that or unpacking basically that red herring, I have to ask this question, and it's a question that Malik is going to answer, which is, what is the actual definition of worship? So what is the definition of worship? The word worship in scripture, or shacha in Hebrew, is a bit different than how we think about it in English. It actually just means to bow down or to be prostrate, which is if someone were to lay flat on the ground, usually face downward in reverence or submission. Now, this could be before anything really People can worship or bow down to false gods, idols, or even other people. Everyone worships. Everyone bows down, literally or figuratively, to something or someone. Like Mike said a few weeks ago, we are born idol factories who desperately need freedom. However, as Christians, we are concerned with worshiping and bowing down to the one true God. Maybe you've seen or come from a background or belief that calls a posture like bowing down worship. Here at Church of the Valley, you have probably seen others do, do this during a time of musical worship or prayer. People get down on their knees or even bury their heads in their laps in response to God and what he's doing. Oftentimes we raise our hands, which for some people can be as much in humility or reverence as bowing down. But I wanna emphasize from the start 
Worship isn't just singing. Songs are playing music to God. It's the way that we sacrifice our lives to God in response to him. This can take form in a lot of ways, um, which we'll talk about more as we go on. I was able to borrow a book uh, called Introductions to Biblical Interpretation. And in that book, I found a quote written by Robert Rayburn. And it says, worship is the activity of the new life of a believer in which recognizing the fullness of the Godhead as it is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ and his mighty redemptive acts. He seeks by the power of the Holy Spirit to render to the living God the glory, honor, and submission which are his due. Put simply, because of God and his grace and the sending of his son Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, and the Holy Spirit working in us, those who follow him worship not just through one single activity, but the way that we live our lives. And with that, we're going to be today in Romans 12, 1 through 2, where Paul kind of writes about this. Well, not kind of, he does. But he says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to, to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Therefore, mm, hold on. I love it when I see a therefore, because it reminds me to ask myself, what's the therefore therefore? Who put the therefore there? Therefore what? Therefore who? Therefore why? It's there for a reason and we need to find it. We can think about it like this. There and four got married and we need to know who their babies are in the text. Let's dive back in. Therefore, mm, that's good stuff. Thanks, Malik. Um, so Paul begins with, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. And that rather silly video that was just played kind of encapsulates the importance oftentimes that we place on therefore, especially here at COV. I'm not going to get as excited or as passionate about therefore as this guy is going to get, but I am going to go into some context and sort of a little bit of nerdiness when it comes to therefore. So with that said, what is the therefore therefore? Well, so Paul is writing this letter to the church in Rome, who most historians would agree were a mix of Jews and Gentiles alike. Paul wrote this during his third missionary journey from the city of Corinth to this church or this city that he had never even visited. And in the first 11 chapters of this letter, he's building this doctrinal foundation, which is truth about who Jesus was and is and what that means for us as believers. And he's now shifting in Romans 12 to practical application. He's just laid out who Jesus is and God's redemptive plan for all mankind, both Jew and Gentile alike. And he's ended chapter 11 with a thought that although many in Israel failed to believe, this resulted in life and salvation to the rest of the world, to you and I. But that this salvation was based on God's goodness and God's awesomeness and was a gift for all mankind. So this therefore that Paul is talking about is pointing backwards to everything he's just said in the previous 11 chapters. Or put another way, that therefore is there 
to point to the foundation of Christ's work before we knew him or did anything to earn or deserve. Because we don't earn or deserve it. Let me put it another another way. Actually, let me let Paul put it another way. In Romans 5, just a few chapters earlier, he says this in 5 verse 8. But God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So when we understand that the foundational work of Christ is his life, his death on a cross, which paid for my sin, for your sin, and he rose from the dead, paying the price for our sin, and he destroyed sin and death, that starts to build a response in us. And that's why he goes, therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters. He's speaking as much to the Romans of that day and age as he is to you and I. Saying, hey, we have a response to everything that's come before. And as we're talking about freedom to worship, this has absolutely or very little to do with singing. It has a lot to do with our response and our motivation to Jesus. So I'm going to take a really quick detour about therefore. And as I was studying this week, I ran across something interesting that John Piper said as he was talking about specifically this word therefore. And it kind of hammers home this point about our foundations. He had this really bold statement that said, no other religion has a therefore quite like Christianity. You see, other religions tend to focus on this nebulous spiritual upward trajectory without any real basis on truth or theology. In fact, he gave Hinduism as an example of they don't really care what you believe as long as you have that trajectory upwards. But I take this trajectory or this sort of off-ramp about therefore because it hammers home the point that we're built on this solid foundation of what Jesus has done. So take a moment. Before we continue, take a moment and just think about that. Think about what Jesus has done, what he's done for you personally, what he's done for all of us. R.C. Sproul puts it this way, the reality of divine grace, justification, and the blessing of the Holy Spirit and God's plan to save Jew and Gentile alike cannot be embraced without producing a new way of life in the believer. So as we continue on in Romans 12, freedom to worship is not just about our ability to give honor and praise to Jesus, but it's also about our motivation and response as to why we give him honor and praise. Thanks, Laura. So what is worship and why do we do it? And how do we have the freedom to worship? Well, starting at the beginning, Paul prefaces what he said, what he says in verse one with, in view of God's mercy. And in response to that mercy, he urges those that he's addressing to make the choice to offer their bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This verse has similar language to that which was used in the Old Testament about sacrifice. In the Old Testament, God's people tried to follow the law, offering and sacrificing for really specific reasons. And one of the ways they sacrificed is that they would bring burnt offerings to God. For example, in Leviticus chapter 7, verse 30, the Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, anyone who brings a fellowship offering to the Lord is to bring part of it as their sacrifice to the Lord. With their own hands, they are to present the food offering to the Lord they are to bring the fat together with the breast and wave the breast before the Lord as a wave offering. The priest shall burn the fat on the altar 
but the rest belongs to Aaron and his sons. So that sounds like a lot of steps. In this case, Paul isn't talking about bringing fat to burn. We don't have to do that anymore because Jesus was the offering that covered everyone's sin. So we don't have to build a tabernacle or bring livestock to offer to burn, but we do have to offer our bodies. And that's what Paul is charging them. And this doesn't just mean our physical bodies, or their physical bodies, but our entire heart, soul, mind, and strength. God doesn't just want our work. He wants us to come to him entirely. God doesn't just want us to show up at church for an hour if our hearts are in need. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22 puts it this way. Where Samuel replies, does the Lord delight in burnt offering and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than to sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. So I just want to ask you, maybe ask God if there's an area in your life where that's been routine. Maybe it's been even kind of religious. Maybe you're going through the motions. That thing can be worshipped. But our hearts have to be in the right place before God. Furthermore, Paul is intentional when he says a living sacrifice. I mentioned previously we no longer have to do something like um, burn offerings or set ourselves on fire or other things on fire. <laughs> Instead, we, have, we sacrifice through how we live in response to the calling that we have received. And that's worship. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 13 says, if we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Paul continues on to say, holy and pleasing to God. That's what we ought to be. But similarly to the Old Covenant, that God had with his people, they would set apart offering specifically that was the best of the best. For example, in Leviticus chapter one, verse 10, it says, if the offering is a burnt offering from the flock, from either the sheep or the goats, you're to offer a meal without effect. In the same way, those who are in Christ are also set apart, but don't take this as a call to clean yourself up. You and I can't make ourselves holy or pleasing to God, nor can I set myself apart, a.k.a. make myself holy. Jesus intercedes on our behalf because he, he became the offering that satisfied our debt, perfect and without blame. We can't do this in our own strength. Apart from God and without the Holy Spirit, we can't do anything eternal, internally meaningful or significant. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12 through 15 puts it this way. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats or calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of, pepper, of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant 
that those who are called either receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom, to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. When I read that, I just think that Christ gave himself up for us. Now we get to live a life of worship for him. And that's why Paul says that this is your true and proper worship, or in other words, reasonable and rational service. A true sacrifice in response to God's mercies is a life of worship according to God's word. It is also evidence that we are new creations in Christ. It's the only way that really makes sense considering who God is, what he's done for us, and the calling that we've received. Because if we love God, we'll keep his commands. And that's worship. John chapter 13, verse 23 to 24 says, Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. The words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. So I want to keep Jesus' commands. But if keeping his commands is worship, how is that freedom? Well, I was thinking of a couple of things and a couple of ways that Worship is freedom, and we have freedom to worship. And I was thinking of this. Freedom to worship means that I'm no longer concerned about all the potential ways I could live my life. Instead, I'm free because, of, because the goodness of Christ is incomparable to any of those things. Freedom to worship means that we don't have to sacrifice to receive mercy. Rather, we sacrifice because we have already received it. Freedom to worship means that we get to worship God, without worrying about making ourselves acceptable before him, because Jesus makes us holy and righteous. Freedom to worship means we no longer have to sacrifice burnt offerings. Jesus sacrificed himself for all. Freedom to worship means that I don't have to be in a specific building to be with God. He's with us, and the Holy Spirit is in us. Freedom to worship means that I no longer am bound by sin, death, or fear, but I can bow down before God, giving my life to him, because of how awesome he is and the gracious gift of eternal life. So I just want to remind you all, worship isn't just singing songs. It's the way that we live our lives. And whatever we're doing, we can do it for the Lord. So think about any ways that maybe you're going through the motions. Maybe there's a difficult person that you can talk to Maybe there's a way that you can sacrifice, and that can be worship to the Lord. But any way that we are offering our bodies that is biblical is worship to him. So as Malik was talking about what it looks like a little bit to be holy or to be set apart, I wanted to talk about this next verse that Paul has, which says, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So right off the bat, Paul is leading out of, Be holy, be living sacrifices, and he goes with, Do not! Now I really have to emphasize, as Malik was saying, he's not giving us this legalistic formulaic set of rules nor is he telling us that we have to be a certain way in order for something to happen. But rather, Paul is setting the stage of contrasting examples between how we shouldn't be as followers of Christ and how we should be. And he lays it out. 
And he just starts with the negative. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world. And that word conformed literally means to be molded, like you've poured something into a mold or you're fashioned after a pattern. So he's saying, don't be fashioned after the pattern of this world. Well, what's the pattern of this world? And I was trying to think of an example, a picture that I could paint, and found that Paul actually painted it for me in Galatians 5. So here it is, Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Paul paints a really graphic picture of what it looks like to be chasing after the world. And he calls it the acts of the flesh, which is basically another way of saying the things that are sinful. This world is the, what you were before Christ. So he says it this way, the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissension, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's kind of a gnarly picture, right? And I really have to stress that what Paul is talking about here in Galatians is not, oh, if I sin or if I kind of do one of these things, suddenly I'm no longer accepted in God's kingdom. No, stop it. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is somebody that is identified by this sin. And he continues on in Galatians 5, through 23 of painting a picture of what somebody looks like who is identified not by this, their sin, but by Jesus, by the Holy Spirit and his attributes. But back to patterns of this world. Straight up, the pattern of this world is rebellion. It's when you're identified by the characteristics of your sin. And that's exactly what Jesus freed us from. That's exactly what Jesus doesn't want us to be identified as if we're supposed to be holy and pleasing and living sacrifices to him. And again, this is not something that you do yourself. It's not something that you can magically will yourself into a new state of being. Has that worked for anybody? Definitely hasn't worked for me. So he contrasts this kind of graphic state with but be transformed. And I love that word, but, because it reminds me in Ephesians 4 when he says, but God, who is rich in mercy, but God, as we've been talking about in the Genesis series, but God, who can do all things, but God, be transformed. And so he talks about this different state of being. What does it mean to be transformed? Well, again, I'm going to read the rest of Galatians 5, 22 through 23, and it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And so I have another picture in this contrasting view that Paul is talking about of this is who you were versus who you are. All of this speaks of the freedom that Jesus gives us, of the ability that he has to transform us. Well, what does it mean to be transformed? Well, first of all, it's not out of your own power or strength. It's through Christ's work. Because that word transformed literally means metamorphosis. Has anyone metamorphosized this week into, I don't know, a beautiful butterfly or something new? I don't think so. Because we just, we can't do that in our own strength. Because that kind of transformation is radical and it's an evident change inside of us from the inside out. Huh, there's kind of a song there. The transformative power of Christ means we get to love him. We get to worship him, which is what Malik was talking about. We get to love him back. 
And that's the attitude of somebody who's been changed, who's been transformed. But he continues on. He doesn't just stop it. You're now transformed. You're good. He says, by the renewing of your mind. Why does he include that? I feel like John Piper puts it a little bit more succinctly than I ever could. He says it this way. The problem with our minds is not merely that we are finite and that we don't have all the information. The problem is that our minds are fallen. We have a spirit, a bent, a mindset that is hostile to the absolute supremacy of God. Our minds are bent on not seeing God as infinite and infinitely more worthy of praise than we are or the things we make or achieve. So straight up, Paul continues, be transformed by the renewing of your mind because transformation doesn't mean that suddenly we're perfect and we're good to go because we've got this old man that carries around with us that although we have freedom in Christ, it doesn't mean that sin just goes away. To kind of illustrate this, so I was having a conversation with Tim, our lead pastor, a couple of weeks ago before the Freedom Series started, and we were talking about this. We were talking about the fact that sin just oftentimes doesn't go away, but we have freedom from it. And he gave me this kind of pithy thing that I wanted to share with you guys. He said, look at the word freedom. It's two parts, free and dumb. And that dumb can stand for dominion or domination. So freedom literally means you are free from domination or dominion from your sin. Let me let that sink in for you. You are free from domination or dominion from your sin. You are no longer identified it by it. And the renewing of your mind, that looks like a consistency, a consistency with God, a consistent relationship with him which looks like any other relationship in a sense where you spend time with him, you spend time in his word, in prayer, and guess what? In worship, because worship is this attitude of your heart. It's not just singing. It's not just about, oh, I can't really carry a tune. Worship is about bowing your heart before a Lord because of what he's done. Freedom to worship is our continued response to the free gift of eternal right standing has everything to do with our heart attitude and our desire to be close to God Almighty. And that idea of being close to God is an idea that Paul continues with in the next section of the tail end of verse 2. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So when I initially read this, I was kind of lost. I was tracking with you, Paul, until we got to this part. What does testing and approving what God's will is have anything to do with being a living sacrifice, being holy, and being transformed? I don't get it. But the more I studied, the more I realized how connected the two actually are. Paul is not talking about performing a lab experiment on God or his will, nor is he saying we're going to be quizzed on it. But what he's actually talking about is that as we're transformed and as we start renewing our mind over and over again, as we start to hit a heavenly reset button, we begin to understand more of God's character. And his character, his presence, who he is, refines us. His character, God's character and attributes are known to us. And it's the kind of knowing that's not just a logical acknowledgement and nor is it just a wild emotionality. It's true relationship with him 
which comes with understanding, it comes with an intimacy, and it comes with deep relationship. And we know what he's about. It's like being about your dad's business. It's like looking like a parent. And that's what freedom to worship means. It means that he saved you and is in the continual process of refining you so that you can have this heart response, so that you want to want to love him back. Not as a, I'm going to pay you back for what you did, God, but as a way of saying, I love you so much. This is my sacrifice to you. And it's not even a sacrifice anymore because I love you so much. So what does worshiping and freedom tangibly look like? I'm a very practical person. And so I need a how-to guide. So let me give you a how-to guide. And it's not, again, a legalistic formula, but it's a stepping stone of giving you some ideas of what tangibly worshiping the Lord looks like. So it's going to be up on the screen, but Psalm 95, 1 through 7, and if you want to turn there, you're more than welcome to. But Psalm 95, David writes this, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is great. For the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. In his hand is the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it. And his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the, his people of his pasture, the flock under his care. So there's a lot here. There's a lot here that I can see that's worship and I'm going to walk through it. He starts off with sing. And as I said at the very beginning, absolutely, singing is a form of worship, but it doesn't end there. He talks about singing for joy. When was the last time you sung for joy? I know for me, it was probably the last time I got my favorite dessert and I did a little happy dance and sang a little song. But when was the last time you sung for joy to the Lord? He continues with shout, shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. When was the last time you shouted for the Lord? And that word shout gets a little bit more context with that word extol, which literally means a war cry. Anybody war cried for the Lord recently? He then talks about thanksgiving. Guys, when was the last time you bowed your heart in gratitude and thankfulness for what he's done for you? And David continues with kind of a poem talking about how great God is. And he talks about the earth and the mountain peaks and the sea and the dry land. I'm going to go out on a limb. When was the last time you wrote for the Lord? And I'm not necessarily talking about poetry or lyrics. When did you journal for him? When did you write something, a letter to him? When did you write for the Lord as a way of communicating with him? He then talks about what Malik talked about, which is bowing down in worship and kneeling before the Lord, our maker. When was the last time you bowed down your heart before the Lord and humbled yourself before him? Put yourself on that altar, not necessarily literally, but metaphorically, in your heart before him. When was the last time you kneeled in your heart or actually literally? When was the last time you gave him praise? Because he's your shepherd and you are his sheep. I'm a sheep. 
So I want to end with a story, a tangible example of, of something that happened to me recently. So anybody that knows me knows I'm really, really klutzy, and this is intensified when I'm tired. So quite a few weeks ago, I was getting into my car, and through a series of utter klutziness, I managed to take a key directly into my eyeball. Don't worry, I don't have pictures. You won't have to linger on that visual. What I'm really getting at is I was really, really angry at myself. I was angry at the situation. I was angry I had to go to the eye doctor. I was upset. I was scared. I was angry. And the last thing I felt like doing was going, God, you're so great. But a few days later, after I walked out of the eye doctor and they said there's no permanent damage, I remember sitting down and going, God, I am so thankful it wasn't worse. I'm so thankful you protected my eyeball. And in that moment of humbling my heart before him, that was worship. That was worship to him because I gave him honor and praise that was rightfully his. So let me ask you guys as we conclude today, what does worship look like in your life? As you've sat through a sermon, as maybe you're sitting through a playlist or whatever it happens to be, what do you feel like the Lord is asking you to do to worship him? And maybe he's asking you to do something that's scary and that's okay. Maybe he's asking you to do something differently or view worship differently. But what does worship look like in your life? So as we close, I just want to recall that Laura and I have been talking about freedom to worship. What does it mean to worship? How it's a response to God and his mercy how it's sacrificing our lives and offering our bodies as a living sacrifice, how God sanctifies us and transforms us, and in, in turn, we, we worship him, how it's something we get to do, it's not a have to do, it's a way that we live our lives, and it's a response to our eternal right standing that's been gifted to us through God and his son, Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit working in us. So I just want to take a moment to pray as we close. And I want to thank God for what he's done, but also ask him to reveal to us ways which we might be able to sacrifice to him, ways which we might be able to worship that we didn't think about before. Maybe a way that we can worship in, in something that's been a little bit mundane or been feeling like our heart's not really in it whether it's talking to someone, sharing the gospel, preaching, singing, praying, sacrificing. These are all ways we can worship God if we're doing it for him. So if you would close your eyes and bow your heads with me as we pray. Lord, I thank you for today. Thank you for your son, Jesus. And thank you that we have the freedom to worship we have the freedom to worship you because of who you've called us to be. And not only that, but thank you, God, that we can freely worship you here in our country. And God, I just pray that you would teach people and show them and reveal to us, Lord, that worship isn't just one single action, but it's the way that we live our lives. And that just takes form through praise and song, through prayer, through encouragement, discipleship, building one another, one another up serving you first and primarily and our, our family and whatever community we're in, God. And I, I just pray, Lord, that you would help people to worship you with all they are. And Lord, we're just giving back to you what's already yours, but help us to lay down our lives for you, God. 
teach us what it means to um, to live as 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 a living sacrifice, because that's what how we worship you, Lord. So thank you, Jesus, that it doesn't depend on us. We don't have to do this in our own strength, but we get to rely on you, God, and that is freeing. I just pray all this in your son's name, Jesus. Amen.